Good morning. This is um, Doc Scott's Revival Talk. It's been a long time since I've been in this seat. Um, uh, pun intended. Um, you know, yesterday I, I attempted something. So you have to understand that if, um, you know, I have a gift and it's called clumsiness. And um, I'm very graceful. Um, my wife likes to tell the story about being downtown, going to um, Palmer's Cafe and um, walking down a very wide air con you know hallway to the back room and there there's the, like this little air conditioner um, control on the wall and with a very wide pathway and an air conditioner controller that I was nowhere near somehow I managed to bump into it and tear it completely off the wall leaving it hanging by a wire and so I, I kind of think that's a gift, you know? Um, and so everything I do as far as faux pas, um, I do them in front of everybody, so that's good. So don't, they say that self-deprecation is kind of the best humor. And so I just do walking self-deprecating. That's a lot of syllables. Um, so anyway, so I, I said that to say that <laughs> yesterday I had this glorious idea that I will try to um, break something down and talk about something that on the um, whiteboard and it didn't work for a couple reasons one because everything was going to be backwards and you know I hadn't thought about that and then I also had haters and I was so excited about that um, anybody that was on yesterday I think you guys probably um, read more language than you really want to hear before eight o'clock in the morning. You know what I mean? Like I was reading through these things. I don't really know how that happens, <clears throat> but somehow they hacked it yesterday. And apparently I'm selling a couch. I didn't even know I was selling a couch, but they were pretty clear about the couch that they wanted. So I don't really know how the whole trolling thing works. I just know that I had to spend the first five minutes or so in my class, you know, as people are coming in, to delete, you know, what, 40 comments that were just vulgar over the top and just blasphemous and horrible and, you know, whatnot. But I wasn't offended. I was just like, oh, wow, I hadn't had this before. So, you know, I usually do all my blunders. I try to do my screen thing. I want to explain something about the screen thing before I get into the topic for today. Yesterday, what I was trying, well, I did post an actual drawing that I did later um, of what I was trying to say. And that tree illustration isn't necessarily just a... Um, it's not a psychologically precise um, way to evaluate our, our inner ways of working, thinking, and the things that plague us in life in terms of problems. What it was supposed to be and what it is is an illustration essentially of where things come from in our soul and, and what shame does and how it manifests and fuels the things that are on those branches. And so on the branches I've just listed, you know, everybody's like addiction and whatever. And I thought about leaving it a blank spot where people could write it in their own, you know, but the, you know, and then I rethought that. And then when you looked at the trunk of that tree, and like I said, I posted the picture last night, you know, I'm a very good artist and all. And um, it's that second grade tree, you know, the kind where you just do the little like that, yeah. And so I'm good at those. And so, and it just talks about how shame undergirds the behavior and it showed what some of the things are at the root. Because Jesus always talks about, you know, in the parable of the sower, he talks about the condition of the soil. And so really what's in the soil is 
everything of who, what, what's, what we're made up of, the things we've experienced. And in that picture, I had some boulders that are in a lot of people's soil, like rejection, abandonment, gender-specific deficits in terms of affirmation, um, abuse, etc. And so those things become the thing that give impetus to later the things that we're struggling with because everything on the top of the tree is really a manifestation of self-protection. It's the ways that we self-protect, medicate, and do all of that stuff um, in an effort to either not deal with the, um, all the stuff that's at the root. And, you know, we weren't, children weren't made. Um, if children had to absorb, let me say it this way. If children had to absorb every single um, thing and the intensity of the blow that came toward them, they would blow up. And there is a God-given mechanism that allows them to detach from some of that. And I have an illustration. When I was, I was probably like five years old. My mom was a single mom. Maybe I was like four. And we came home one day and our house had been robbed. But not just robbed. They had like turned it inside out, dumped everything. You know, my mom was hysterical. The police were there. And in the middle of the unholy chaos, I spotted a big wheel. Okay, I'm dating myself over on the other side in the, what we call the Florida room. And my mom looked at me, looked at the big wheel, and told me to go ahead and take it for a spin. Like, go ahead and do that. In other words, I don't want you to be present to this. Why don't you go do that? But I went off like nothing happened and was totally consumed in my, um, in my big wheel. And so children are profoundly resilient. And a lot of times we don't know what really got put in us or what really happened to our heart until we're down the road. And, you know, then it begins to emerge in all kinds of ways. And so, but the illustration of the big wheel and the bomb that had gone off, you know, metaphorically in the house was that's what happens with children. They can have a bomb go off on the inside that does all kind of devastation. And the earlier that the abuse is introduced, the more impacting and pervasive it becomes in the manifestations of of addiction, mental illness, all the things that kind of come out of that. And so they go with the bomb going off on the inside. They continue to go through life. and they, But they carry the shrapnel. They carry the things from that bomb in their very heart. And so in that illustration, if you looked at the roots, I had this nice big arrow of, of Holy Ghost revival. And, you know, essentially, we were talking a little bit about how you know, we've talked a lot about being seated and how it, you know, I've been reading a really, really, really good book and I'll have to post, I'll post the cover and the title of it later. But it's, he goes into the whole thing about seating in depth. And what he talks about is, you know, it's, it's always affirming. I don't know about you, but, it, you know, the enemy's biggest goal in the things that we go through is to isolate us, break us away from um, the communication and to create the illusion of separation. He wants us to believe, and, and our shame usually agrees with the lie, that we're the only ones going through this, that we're not connected to God, that, you know, we're defective, there's something wrong with us, that somehow whatever we've experienced is so unique 
that we need to be isolated from other people because nobody else has this. Even though we know that that's not true in our head, it still becomes a reality in our heart. Because many of us, and this is what part of the journey was, I, I asked the other night like how many people have been, had gone through great devastation, the perfect storm of the enemy, and a couple hands went up because the minute I said perfect storm enemy, they knew, okay, that's it, I got that. But then when I said, how many people have had your lives like really wrecked in a way where you feel like the enemy was just trying to take you out? Oh, and then every hand went up. Yes, that's us, right. So clarif clarifications are good. Um, what this author says about the seating process is the biggest war is on the way to your seat. And so this journey that we've been on, where the enemy tried to take us out, take us out, take us out, derail us, we came to the threshold of major destiny forks in the road and they blew up. And he's, you know, those cycles are ones that you hear a lot. I mean, if I asked for a show of hands right now, I wouldn't be able to see them, but I'd ask for it. How many people feel like that they've been at the threshold of their destiny several times before, but it didn't happen because something came in at that threshold to literally blow us out of the water to derail us. That's what the enemy has done in every threshold season where we have come to that fork in the road and our destiny and that golden path is being laid out for us. Something happens. And so he talks a lot about the war to that. And there are other authors that really kind of speak to, um, you know, threshold um, Kairos moments in our life. And, but once we're seated, he was saying simply that that's when, um, we've talked about this a lot, Remnant too, about the backing of heaven is all at your door. And it's the whole thing of fighting you because, you know, one of the biggest things that I struggled with, and I've talked about this some too, um, in the seasons of devastation and loss, is the enemy was, you know, working with my shame. They were like a little partners. And um, was able to convince me, number one, that God wasn't, didn't love me personally. I was in ministry of believing that when I came to Brunswick, what, 13 years ago, I didn't believe that God actually loved me or thought about me in terms of any of his intentionality. Because my world and my wife's world had blown up for a decade. And literally, I had so many places wrapped around my heart to protect myself, which is what we do. The human response to devastation is to look at devastation and the death that comes with it and say, and make an inner vow that I will never again experience that. And in our commitment not to experience pain again in that way, we build defenses and mechanisms to help keep us from experiencing that. The problem is those mechanisms are false. They're empty. They're usually our addictions. They're usually the ways that we protect our heart from being loved or experiencing intimacy or getting close to people, trusting people, all of that. And so... Because of that, the enemy has a huge investment. If the enemy can bankrupt me internally, then he's won. He's won. And so when we came here, I was in that bankrupted place. And um, 
believed that God was the God of Bette Midler, watching at a distance, but not really involved with me. That's what the enemy does in the war on the way to your seat. Because when you get to the place where you're being seated, where you realize that I'm finally sitting in the place of authority that God created for me from the beginning, and now I get to do and I'm going to function in places that I have never functioned fully before, because the convergence of the gift, the calling, and all of the seasons of preparation, even in the darkest times, comes together in that kind of Kairos moment when we take that seat. And in that moment, everything shifts. Everything shifts. And when it shifts, it shifts in such a way that we are not exempt from warfare, but it shifts in a way that we'll never be beaten up by it the same way again. It shifts in such a way that all of the truth that Jesus has formed in me, even in the darkest seasons of my life, he was forming truth in you and me. Even in the darkest seasons, which we realize later, when we repent and realize he was always there, he wasn't wasting any part of that process. But when we get to that place, we see the intentional the intentionality and the purpose of God. And we realize that we are that we are part of a divine um, a divine scheme of heaven and that we carry a piece of the puzzle that our DNA that comes into this mix is literally a piece of the puzzle that fits into God's eternal purpose and plan for, for the world. And that's, that's what the enemy is actually fighting. He's coming against the kingdom being established on heaven as it is on earth as it is in heaven. So the enemy knows, he doesn't know everything, but he does know that there is something on us and there is something about our destiny that the Father is manifesting, and he doesn't know what it looks like. He doesn't get to read my book of life, but he does know that there are the manifest sons of daughters of God, that they're being raised up, they're being pulled out of obscurity, they're being pulled out of long seasons of death and destruction, and that in those seasons, the enemy thought he was winning. That's what's so fun about this. The enemy thinks that we've won. And one of the things my wife and I <laughs> said to each other after years of hell, literal, we realized one day the fact that we're still standing, I think, means that we won. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> in other words, you come through the, the most harrowing seasons and the darkest seasons of your life. If you're still standing, you win. You're still there because he didn't take you out. He attempted at every turn. Here's the other part of that. When there is a divine destiny and a divine purpose 
that's on me and you, and that we are the only ones that can fulfill that purpose in the planet, then our appointed time is going to manifest, and our appointed time is going to be realized. And the enemy wasn't even able to take us out along the way. That's big. If you've made it to this point, to this point, and you are seated and ready to literally step into the thing that you were called to do, the authority that you have with all the backing of heaven, if you've made it to today and you're here now, you've already won. Because it means that he wasn't able to take you out. It means that everything he threw at you didn't prosper. Not enough to kill you, not enough to take you out. I came to Brunswick with my heart in the worst condition I've ever had it in my entire life. My heart was fortified, Fort Knox, right? But in revival, amplified grace forces new change. Amplified grace forces change that I was unable to apprehend in previous seasons of my life. Everything that you could not apprehend or get a hold of or see manifest in freedom from this addiction, freedom from that, financial bondage, all of those things. There's something on financial bondage right now. Ha! I just realized that. You know, all right, I'm going to say this real quick. Shut up, Siri. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Many of us have held on to debt for a lot of years. We've prayed for supernatural provision and supernatural debt cancellation. Until you're in your seat, it ain't happening. But when you're in your seat, even my debts are going to go away. The Lord is going to take care of them one way or the other. It's, it is this thing of holy convergence that many of the pieces that you've seen, that you've longed for, that you knew were there, uh, like in other words, if you, it, it, all of those pieces are now coming into a place where they will be fulfilled. Being seated is the fulfillment of the promise. Being seated is the fulfillment of God's holy, intentional agenda and purpose on the face of the earth. And if we're not in it, it doesn't happen. We could say God could do it sovereignly. Sure, he can. But he didn't opt to do it that way. Because he knew the beginning from the end. And he knew who you were. Look, it's not a surprise to God that you got wrecked and you got derailed. It's not any of that surprise. I can only imagine the enemy coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, I see your son Scott down there and his wife. Can I go ahead and just sift them? Like, can I just like... I don't know that God gave permission per se. It doesn't really matter to me whether he did or not, but it's the metaphor that counts here. Because he knew who I was and he knew what was written in the book of my life before I was conceived by a parent on the planet. And he knew the beginning from the end and he knew how precisely he was going to rescue me and save me and then turn me loose as, a, as one of the biggest threats, I'm not saying this is about me, that's about you too, on the planet to the enemy's kingdom, if he knows that, he's not worried like we are when we're in that season. He knew all along 
that we were going to emerge for such a time as this. He knew all along that we were going to get seated. We didn't know everything about us, but he knew enough. But he doesn't read my book of life. If the pages in the book of your life that were created before you were born are there in that book, you're not going to die before those pages are fulfilled. Your destiny was inscribed in that book before you were thought of. And so my point in that is, is that we all have an appointed assignment that only we could fulfill for a, a, a season with the, where we're in the sovereign people, sovereign times, sovereign seasons. And we're in that now as we cross into a new era. So the assignment that you were created for on the planet does not expire until it expires. Meaning, it expires when it's gonna expire. But if you're here for that appointed time, in reality, nothing is going to happen to you until you get there. In other words, every day that has been allotted for you to be here, you're going to be here on this planet. And the enemy isn't gonna be able to prosper in that one anymore. And when we're seated, it's like we're enveloped in a new grace of heaven that we literally get the invisibility cloak of heaven that we are covered and hidden in plain sight in ways that the enemy, not that we don't do warfare, but that we will, will not be unseated. There isn't a person or a principality that can get you out once you're in it. And that's why the enemy fought so hard on the journey to the seat. It was interesting. It makes more sense to me now. When I first came to Brunswick and I was reconnecting with my heart, and I, it happened in the context of Bible Lit and the kids and the Jesus I saw in them, it was set up from heaven to get to me and to them. And during that time, I had a lot of grief because in I, you know, cutting off from my heart for many years, I also, when we close our heart off, we're not just closing our heart off to the bad, we close it off to the good. My brick wall and my fortress heart was a way to keep love from penetrating any part of me. The beauty, let me finish this part first. The Lord made a promise to me. It makes a lot of sense now. He said, no longer will the waters of destruction come against you again, like in the days of Noah. And he said, do not, you will no longer define your future based on your past. You will not look to this to tell you anything about this again. That was a very profound promise. I was on the front end of that 12, 13 years ago. And I remember the huge grief that came up in me because when I disconnected from the hurt, I disconnected from the dream. But Jesus resurrects dreams. And see, a lot of us, a lot of mantles, a lot of dreams, a lot of visions, a lot of things fell to the ground or got stolen, snatched, etc. Jesus has not forgotten everything that he has intended for you. And as he restores you and me as a seated man and woman, 
in the kingdom of God as the manifest sons and daughters, he, we, the convergence of every promise and every dream comes together in a cataclysmic explosion in the spirit. And so things that have been held up for seasons are now being released. We always prayed the prayer when we were going through it. You're going to restore all the years the locusts have eaten. And then we went from year to year and we're like, okay, wait a minute. Where's the return on that, right? I mean, let's just be honest. You know, we heard the song, he's in the waiting, he's in the waiting. And my sarcasm was, oh yeah, he really is. Um, it just reflected where my heart was. But essentially, we're in the place of the great release. And so in this place of convergence that leads us and brings us to our seat, the release of all things is loosed in heaven and they will now begin to manifest. That's what a new era looks like. A new era is, a, is an era of time where nothing in this era is defined by the previous. Whatever worked back here won't work again. Whatever brought you here is valuable because it got you to your seat, but nothing about this is going to define where you're going. The part that I would say remains, you know, our plans, schemes, all the things we did back here, is that the very things that he's formed in your heart, the way he has tried you in the furnace, and, and literally the gifting and the things that you have passion for, those things that are in this part of our life they all birth something in us, even if that birth was aborted. But in this season, there's no abortion. There's only delivery. And so everything, every dream, every promise, every aspiration in the kingdom, all of those things that we wanted to see fulfilled in a time are now being fulfilled in this moment for this time. My challenge to us is, I feel like the Lord's saying this, when you encounter a struggle that you feel like threatens to unseat you, remember the Lord's saying, because he just said it to me and he's saying it now, this is not that. In other words, just because something looks familiar and smells familiar because of what I went through here, and any part of that that I've carried with me that still wants to try to inform my heart and my spirit, anything that looks like something that threatens to, to be the very thing that I've already been through, the, you know, the grand devastation, is not that. And here's the difference. Even if the warfare we experience now resembles something that we experienced in the past, the outcome is different and the outcomes is the Lord. And so the testing for us is when we're in those fiery places in our seat and we see things coming, the test is going to be, where do we go with that in our heart? Does my yes still reverberate loudly to Jesus? Yes. Do I approach him as a victim? Why are you doing this? No. If you're seated that victim mentality language has been deleted from your vocabulary. Jesus is giving you a new vocabulary right now. And there's a new vocab list for this era. And it doesn't include the vocabulary of yesterday. 
literally, he is releasing a new language to us. You're going to talk different. You're going to function different. You're going to see things different. Everything about what it means to walk in this unfamiliar, holy chaos, Kairos moment era is going to be different than what it was. And the language that we use, the things that we come into, many of us are learning a lot of new things right now. You're actually, some of us are in streams we haven't been in before. Get ready, because if you're in a stream now, you might get popped into another. <laughs> because the chess pieces on the board are moving like crazy right now. It's part of the positioning and the aligning of heaven so that we can fulfill God's holy purpose on the planet. And so that we, living from our seat of authority and a place of convergence, can begin to walk in the authority that we were always created to walk in. This is that hour, the hour of coming into our seat and the hour that denotes a new era that is defined by the unfamiliar and the holy chaos of heaven where we cling to Jesus as our anchor in the midst of a storm and we're not shaken. We're not moved. And the backing of heaven is with us as seated people who walk in the authority of the name of Jesus. And we are given the mantle to have dominion over the world. This is where what you speak and what comes out of our mouth is changing because we are framing up a new reality in this era with our mouth. I'll let it go there. Love you all. I'll be back tomorrow, uh, not tomorrow, Monday, 6.30 for Revival Prayer to 7 and 7 to 7.30 for this little Revival Talk. And um, bless you guys. Take your seats. <laughs> Oops. <laughs>